Welcome to the Deep Tech Show. In this podcast, Edmar Ferreira will be joined by expert guests as they dive into the world of deep tech. We are telling the stories of the heroes who are taking real risks to give us a future of flying cars, virtual reality, robots, and space exploration. Enjoy the show. Today's guest is Aaron Morris, an Oxford mathematician, former data scientist and trader, now CEO and co-founder of PostEra. Hello, Aaron. Welcome to the Deep Tech Show. I'm really happy to have you here. Uh, Aaron is founder of PostEra, a really interesting company using AI and bio to revolutionize drug discovery. So really pleasure to have you here. So would like to start like what actually PostEra does, like what, what you guys are, are cooking up. Sure. Thanks, Edmond. It's a real uh, privilege to be here with you as well. So what does Pursuer do? Well, we focus on drug discovery. We focus on using technologies like machine learning and artificial intelligence to help bring drugs to patients and new cures to diseases faster. Uh, there is a significant slowdown in the industry that's been well noted in the past decades. And for many industries, technology has allowed them to become more efficient, generate higher ROIs. And that's not the case in the pharmaceutical industry. It's never been harder to bring a new drug to market. And there are various reasons for that. But at the end of the day, this poses a real challenge to patients. And Posterior at a very, very high level is trying to address some of those challenges by leveraging new technologies that we help pioneer in the space of machine learning. This is really interesting. Do you think that creating a drug today, it's more expensive and more time consuming than, let's say, two decades ago? So uh, statistically, that is true. Uh, if you look at the average and medians of a drug being brought to market, estimates are very, very wide depending on what you count, but certainly well over billion, uh, over a billion dollars to bring a drug to market on average. Some estimates will be about two and a half billion, ranges between eight years and 10 years. And whichever way you slice it, that's a long time and it's very expensive yeah. compared to any other industry. And we think that we can do better. Yeah. Um, what do you think it's the biggest bottleneck that, that making it take so long and cost so much? A couple of points I would bring up here. And I'll be honest, Posterior doesn't address all of them. Uh, we address some significant ones, but th there are some challenges that even you know beyond the purview of what we focus on. Uh, I think the first one is, is a very honest statement that the human body is wonderfully complex and frustratingly yeah. complex. Yes. And biology is incredibly, incredibly hard. And phase two failures, generally, the drug just doesn't work. Um, uh, another big reason is you have um, what's kind of known as off-target effects or basically toxicity problems with the actual drug, meaning it is unsafe to be distributed to the broader population. So that is a fundamental understanding of biology. And you can go some way to beginning to predict those things, but it is still immensely difficult to tackle that challenge. And that's a growing field of discovery in, in biology. And uh, that, that's an area that I think most people are well aware of. Another area that I think is probably more focused around what Posterior is currently doing is in the early stages of drug development, which uh, take up about a third of the cost. So, you know, let's call it like um, half, uh, half a billion dollars. In, in that preclinical stage of drug discovery, there are uh, a number of challenges. One of them is that 
the way drug development is done is still very much trial and error. It's still very much we're going to try a bunch of things and see if they work. And if they don't work, we'll just keep throwing things until something sticks. And we try and humans try and learn from that data and seek to iterate on top of it, of course. Now, what machine learning allows you to do is given that you are dealing with data and quite a lot of it, first, it allows you to maximize the information gain from that data that you are getting, not only from the current drug you're developing, but trying to bring in more general information about drug development from other information that exists in the public domain or private. So, so if if without machine learning, we have like a lot of trial and error with the machine learning, uh, we would like getting like smarter at the trying part of it, like trying smarter. Yeah. The first thing in the pure machine learning is going to be um, much smarter, much more higher quality in terms of can you predict multiple properties of a drug at once? You know, this is a familiar problem in uh, multi-objective um, optimization where you need a drug to satisfy a variety of properties. And that's kind of really hard for humans to kind of wrap their head around how one change to my chemical scaffold affects a variety of important properties and you know machine learning moves a bit closer to be able to manage that complexity not only that but actually a very practical problem again that we spend a lot of time on is if you again take the paradigm of designing molecules getting those molecules made and then testing those molecules getting the data back and doing an iterative loop that's this kind of traditional what's called cycle time much of that time the majority of that time is spent making molecules just getting them synthesized in a lab somewhere around the world. And that is a huge part of what we focus on, doing that much faster, much quicker, much more efficiently than other approaches. And uh, in a way, it's incredibly exciting because there's far more chemistry available than ever before in the history of, of drug development, given the brilliant work by a lot of manufacturers around the world. So we're leveraging those huge databases of molecules to help get to more promising, safer drugs faster. So you guys use machine learning to help choose the the molecules that we would try to see if are drugs or your machine learning system helps to produce those molecules more efficiently or, or, or faster like you are in both sides or? So you can like, kind of break it down really simply. As I said, you're kind of going through this three-step process in the early stages. You're designing them, you're making them, then you're testing them. We do all three. And a lot of the emphasis in the industry was originally on how do you design better molecules, like get an algorithm to dream up a new chemical structure. And that is valuable and it's important. But unless you have a really good concrete hold on the most expensive and longest part of that process, which is making them and synthesizing them. And it's a very suboptimal design process. So we have technologies that design molecules, technologies that figure out how to make molecules, and then technologies that try and predict what will the chemical properties be. So what is the experimental testing of those molecules? So we're doing all of it, Edmar. We think, you know, particularly the innovation in posterior was definitely around the make stage. How do we get molecules made in a much better way? But ultimately, for our technology to bring real value, we, we do cover that in entire like life cycle and i think that if you are efficient on the the making of the the molecules and faster you end up with a faster loop would be make the whole thing 
faster and more precise yeah. because faster loop, more information gain, much, yeah. much cheaper given the chemistry that we can access. And yeah, and it just means you go through that entire cycle um, significantly quicker than traditional approaches. Which is which is kind of a virtuous cycle because the more molecules you test, the more data you're going to have, the best you're going to be at predicting, the best you're going to be at making new ones. Yeah, makes sense looking at it like a, an entire process instead of just uh, looking at individual uh, steps. Uh, so who are your target customers? Like what's the profile of a customer that you guys serve today? Our customer is anyone who's developing a drug with one caveat <laughs> that, uh, they, that they're working in the small molecule space. So there's a variety of therapeutic modalities, which is basically how are you going to cure a patient? Uh, there's a variety of new ways in like the biologic space, which has become very hot, very exciting in the past kind of five, 10 years. Um, but Pursuers focuses still very much on the traditional small molecule space. So if you're a drug developer, big pharma, small biotech, anywhere in between, and you're developing a small molecule drug, we can help you. And what type of go-to-market do, strategy do you guys have? Like how, how do you pretend to approach those companies that are in need of the solution? It, it, the go-to-market, I think, is a super interesting question when you're founding deep tech. I, I can speak, obviously, only really to yeah. biotech, but you, there's a variety of things you can do. Like One thing you can do is say, hey, I'm just going to make my own drugs. Like No point going around trying to partner with people and do projects and do JVs. Like, why, don't, why don't we just make our own drugs? Um, you can do that. There's several challenges associated with it. Um, posterior for now is is focused on uh, co-developing drugs with other partners. So we find people whose technology really complements ours. That typically means looking for people who are very strong on the biology side of drug development and pairing them with the chemistry strength that Posterior brings. And we jointly bring a drug closer to phase one human trials. So that is our current focus. But then you do like, you look for people who, who are already are developing the drug and then you partner with them, bringing your technology together with them? Absolutely, yeah. And for many of the people that we work with, uh, they just have an idea. They, they don't have yeah. any chemical matter. They just have a disease that they want to go after and they'll typically have a target of interest that they are looking to aim their drug at. And then they come to post you and say, hey, we've got a disease, we've got a target, can you find us the small molecule drug? And that's the very, very, very natural partnership that we work with many clients on. Yeah, makes sense. And how, how those guys find you or you find them, like how it... Uh, yeah, it's a bit of both. Uh, Posture has been quite fortunate to get a pretty kind of good exposure via a project called COVID Moonshot. I'm uh, very happy to talk about that at some point. But yeah, it is still very much about getting your name out there. There's several ways to do that. Um, publishing papers, particularly within the scientific domain that I work in, is a very good way of seeking to cement your credibility and demonstrate the power of what you can do. You can go to conferences and try and get people's input there. You build off your own internal networks that you have. You put out case studies. There's a variety of ways to kind of attract the right people. Um, but I think it is important as a founder, if anyone approaches you, it can be such a nice feeling that someone wants to work with you that you yeah. just any client, any deal, any project. And we have to be very strict about what makes sense for our company. What are the right partners? 
and great. If we get incoming, that's fantastic and we get a lot of it. But uh, sometimes we, yes, we do go out and we are focused on outbound. We go to new companies and say, hey, we think you've got something really interesting here. Let's have a chat about how we can work together. Yeah, I think that other interesting thing would be to look at maybe investors and in, in VC on their funding, new new bio startups because it's just it looks like a really good partnership to to do like it's like uh, your business more like a platform play than than anything else i think so it's 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 really good platform to partner with with people uh, and could accelerate a lot on the on the drug development space like in the biospace like partnership you guys like an, an aws or a github type of thing for for other biotech companies to build up together could be I see I see I see this being really helpful yeah it'd be interesting uh, yeah I guess obviously one thing that you can't do if you want a partnership model is fail to do that at scale you, the number of people yeah. you tend to hire it's not linear but it's certainly not exponential in terms of there is still a human using technology so obviously this is where the SaaS world comes in and obviously that's what the power of technology companies in that once they've built a product, it can scale very, very well to lots of users. That whole notion of users and network effects doesn't really translate perfectly across to biotech and life sciences. But nonetheless, we have developed a SaaS product. We do have a software product that we now have released just a couple of months ago. It's called Manifold, and it gives people access without having to do a partnership with Postura. It gives them access to a slice of our technology, which again centers around that question of how to make molecules. So um, you're absolutely right that the AWS, the GitHub analogy is tempting, but again, it practically to execute it, it does come with a few challenges unless you have standalone solutions. Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. Do we have, yeah, a lot more of work when you think about the bio part than would be if it's just a software place. A lot of things involved. Who do you see as your competitors in this space? There's anything that would be a direct competitor or some alternative or something like that? Yes. Yeah, so I guess the notion of a competitor is interesting here because if you think about what defines a competitor in, in other industries, it might be a given market. So like a given set of consumers and everyone's fighting over those consumers. In the biotech world, everyone knows that the drug market is trillions of dollars. So the, the notion that like I have to worry that there are going to be no drugs left or no opportunities to develop drugs because everyone else has taken them, that doesn't really exist. So I'm not too worried that there were there were no drugs left that we that we could develop. Where things are a more natural competitor is competing for partnerships. So obviously you've got big pharma companies, the top big 10 pharma companies, the, the Pfizer's, the Sanofi's, is the J&Js of the world and, and a lot of smaller companies like ours to some extent yes are competing for partnerships with these larger pharmaceutical companies for a variety of reasons so framing competition in that regard there are a couple of you know very good other AI companies that we get compared against if you're familiar with like Atomwise um, Excientia Silico Medicine uh, you know these type of people uh, were a few years earlier than Postera and they have their own focus and uh, 
naturally, we have some level of competition when pitching our technology with big pharmaceutical companies. Yeah, I totally agree that the, the market is is huge, and I think that I think that happens a lot with the AI in drug discovery is that the, the approach of each company and the philosophies of each company tend to be different. So it's really interesting. Like even even if you're drilled out in the AI for drug discovery, each company has a their own type of philosophy or their own approach, which has their own benefits and, 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 and negatives when you look at that. But it's, it's not the same thing when you drill down and look what they are doing. Like, Yeah, I definitely agree. And what's your business model? Like, how do you guys make money? Uh, so we make money in two ways. Uh, the first way is the partnerships that I mentioned. So we work with partners to develop drugs. We get paid in a variety of formats, um, milestones, royalties, uh, upfront payments, and then separately, we have a manifold platform that I just mentioned, and we offer that as a software product. So that is a annual, typically, or sometimes monthly subscription that um, people pay to access the technology there. So we have you know, both the partnership side, which is kind of much more long sales cycle, large payments, quite lumpy. And then you have the cash flow from a traditional SaaS product, smaller amounts, but much more frequent, much more consistent. And so actually... Actually, it kind of nicely diversifies your cash flow, having a bit of both, to be honest. Yeah. On, on the SaaS side, it's like, what is your, your expected go-to-market? Do you think that you need to have like a, more like a sales approach or would be more like an inbound approach for, for the SaaS side of it, like the, the manifold platform? Yeah, so the manifold platform, from our perspective, is no SaaS product can go without sales. Like nothing ever sells itself. So of course, yeah. uh, you do have to do sales sales around it. But ultimately, we built the SaaS product for ourselves. Like we were using it ourselves. We built it for COVID Moonshot, actually. And we continue to use it every single day. It's also great that people pay for us to pay us to be able to use it as well. So that's a kind of like natural funnel, if you will, like the partners we're using, look at Manifold and go, oh, hey, I can access some of posterior technology even without them in the room. You know, this is great. And then, of course, there's the other natural side of it. Yes, we do webinars, we do promotions. We do conferences, uh, advertising the Manifold technology platform. And um, I guess, uh, yeah, within the company, we have people who are uh, dedicated and focused on kind of raising the, the awareness around that product. Yeah, yeah interesting. And where did the, the idea came from? Like, where did spark of starting a company like this? Like, how was like the, the beginning of it? Yeah, the genesis is actually from very academic foundations. So my other co-founders uh, were both at Cambridge University researchers there and they had pioneered a series of new machine learning approaches uh, in partnership with Pfizer and, and other pharma companies that had shown real promise and I in particular was interested in the application of machine learning to healthcare in general and to biotech and so I moved out of finance and joined my other two co-founders and kicked off Posterior back in 2019 and really I think though we had pioneered, though the team had pioneered a machine learning across again, designing, making, and testing, really the kind of major differentiation was at that synthesis stage. Like we were the, really the first company to solve the problem of not only what should you make, but how should you make it and make that a single process rather than you design a load of molecules 
And then as an afterthought, you then figure out which ones can be made and you just post-process and filter them. It's like actually integrating the process of chemical synthesis into the design world. And that for us was like, okay, hey, this is something quite different. We think we've got a good shot at building the world's best chemistry platform, which is what we're doing. And it made the most natural sense to turn that into a company. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. So you have, how, how did you met your co-founders who are like in a more academic sense doing this research before? Yeah, so uh, Alpha, who's uh, the the chief scientific officer of Postio, is a long-term friend of mine. We both studied mathematics at university together. Uh, he continued to stay in academia. I moved on to the financial sector. And when Alpha came back to Cambridge and began the research group there, uh, one of his collaborators and students, in fact, uh, was, was Matt, uh, who came over from the US. And so I got to know Matt through Alpha, um, given that I'd already had a kind of a uh, long-term friendship with him. Oh, this, this is interesting. And like, you have like a... Uh, uh a really good background in finance and investment, having been at, at Goldman Sachs. Like you had like a really interesting career. I read a few in banking and finance and probably making a lot of money. Why did you decide to leave Goldman Sachs and, and go into post-era? Uh, yeah, a couple of reasons. So I think I I was doing an increasing amount of machine learning toward the end of Goldman. And I guess I just was looking for a way to say, okay, how can this technology directly impact the everyday person a little bit more? And I guess I saw the biotech field as having just pretty significant impact on the lives of the everyday person. And I think just as a motivation to get out of bed in the morning, it's a pretty good one to think, hey, I get to code, I get to use the latest in machine learning, and ultimately this is contributing toward better human health. So I think there was that angle. I think the second angle as well for me, I, I developed a very technical background. All my life had been very much kind of mathematics, coding, uh, quantitative finance, all of that. And and I think I was looking for a way to kind of disrupt myself. I, I wanted to find a way to force myself to learn a new skill set. Because within Postdira, yes, I code and I can do machine learning, but it's not my day-to-day -day job. I'm, I'm the CEO. I'm responsible for the clients we bring on, the strategy we lay out, the hiring, the sales pitches, all of the non-technical stuff that I was used to doing every single day. And so for me, that was a good challenge to say, how can I widen my skill set beyond just the technical and quantitative skill set that I, I currently had? This is interesting. It makes you think, like, what is your routine like nowadays? Nowadays, uh, nowadays, I'm I'm in a hotel and uh, <laughs> haven't yet unpacked my life. But in in a so-called normal, whatever the word normal means, uh, I uh, yeah, I, I spend the mornings uh, at least. Now I'm in the U.S. I have meetings. When I was in the U.K., not many meetings happen in the morning. But yeah, no, I, I spend the mornings typically like um, cranking through the 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 email inbox I kind of will spend uh, much of the day doing a mix probably 50% time hiring uh, the rest of the time split between strategy in the company closing client contracts 
and uh, general just discussions with, I just seem to talk to anyone and everyone. Sometimes I manage the social media, sometimes I'm speaking with lawyers. I think you just have to be pretty flexible in your approach. So yeah, much of my day is kind of management and meetings. Uh, I do then have the evenings typically to like do a bit more kind of research and reading and follow up on the latest news. We have a daily team call where the entire company comes together and we talk about the work that we're doing. So there, that is some semblance of routine. But if I was to tell a new founder anything, it's that you will not have a routine, uh, typically, if, if you're in that, this type of role. It will vary a little bit. How do you think that your background in, in math and in Goldman helps you right now as a post-year CEO? So I'd, I'd maybe comment on two things. Firstly, the elephant in the room in that finance has nothing to do with developing drugs. So <laughs> I'm going to try and say that because I learned how to trade options, I can somehow somehow manage to understand how to get through a phase two trial. But I'd point out two things. I think the, the first thing is that obviously underpinning machine learning is a lot of statistics and mathematics. And that's a very natural language to me. It's the language that I love. And so uh, at least the core technology we use is very amenable to my skill set. And I help and contribute to that in the company. But the second one, I think that maybe I can say I, I helped bring to the team, you know, given that Alpha and Matt were very much in the academic world is finance also has a huge degree of machine learning and quantitative approaches applied. But I guess I've seen the difference between what works in a publication and what works in practice. And there's sometimes a pretty big gulf. And within Goldman, you're getting constant feedback because you're trading on the stock market and you're making money or you're losing money. So the reality of how good your ideas are get fed back to you exceptionally quickly. Yeah, the feedback is better. Yeah. True. That type of feedback cycle for me, I think, helped concretize a way of doing things at posterior, which means you you cut your losses or, or at least you have a very clear idea of measuring what is working. Is this new exciting paper published in NIPS going to translate into an actual benefit in this company? So it's a little bit less concrete, but it's that notion of being able to critique industrial applications of quantitative techniques and machine learning. And how do you think, or if you guys do anything like to make this like this feedback loop between research and reality faster? Like you said, in the finance is pretty quick. Of course, like bio is complicated, research is complicated. The the, the loop is harder, but at the same time, we need to always be thinking about how to make it faster, how to make it quicker. The the feedback loop you have, like what? How do you guys organize yourselves to to get Feedback. I mean, this is one of the good things, right? If you can make a molecule in two weeks rather than six weeks and get the same information gain, then uh, you know you have you've just got a 33% saving on the actual time. Uh, sorry, 66% saving on, on the time of um, I guess your prior being updated. The the information that you're working with now getting some new input. So that is one of the ways that we do it. Is that we specifically make or target very simple chemistry very early on to get the fastest feedback as to how our model's performing in that approach. It's not as fast as the financial sector where you're making and losing money every time you trade. But nonetheless, you can drive these cycle times down if you're willing to basically move very quickly and even sometimes sacrifice what may look very promising for something a little less promising, but that it will feedback 
back to you much quicker and the information game is commensurate for doing that. Like making every molecule is a risk reward trader, exactly like trading a stock. You have the risk that it could go to zero. You have the risk in, in, in drug discovery that your compound is dead. You also have a potential reward of what that molecule could do for your drug discovery campaign. And trying to get a more better understanding of quantifying the risk return of each molecule you make is is quite valuable. Yeah, yeah, this this makes sense. This makes sense. I think what you guys are doing, in a sense, is charting the 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 whole loop on the drug discovery process, kind of a way of making it faster in a way like it's. it's one of your main goals when you think about that. Uh, could you tell us what is the COVID moonshot that you guys were working with? Yeah, so it was really interesting to start a drug discovery company and then be launched into a pandemic four months after starting your company. Uh, it turned out that posterior technology was actually super useful specifically for, for the development of, of antiviral drug candidates. Uh, but taking a step back, so we were at Y Combinator in March of 2020 and we saw some data that had been released from Oxford University on Twitter that was an early stage experiment, you could say, in terms of trying to find an antiviral. So this is not a vaccine, this is an, an antiviral. Uh, you need both to finish and put a pandemic behind us, by the way. So you need both. So this was a start of trying to move toward an antiviral. And we saw this data that was obviously in the public domain now. We said, well, this is great. How can we move this experiment forward. Now, what you can do, you can take that information and keep it in your own head and keep it proprietary and go off and make a drug. Fine. What we decided to do was say, well, why don't we crowdsource ideas? Why don't we keep this data in the public domain, make it super accessible for people and ask chemists to look at this data and suggest what to make next? So, I mean, like, you know, Edmar, we were like four months old as a company. We, we barely just had a website that only us three ever went on. And so, you know, we put this data on, on, the, on the website and basically said, hey, if you want to help develop an antiviral drug or you want to help develop this experimental data, here's a really nice UI. Here's a nice drawing tool. Draw some structures and tell us what we should make next. So, like, we expected 50, I don't know, maybe 100 ideas from a couple of friends or whatever. And uh, to date, were about 17,000 ideas and we kind of well over 400 scientists around the world find this website and start contributing ideas. And the best part is that those didn't stay as ideas on a website. We then had people say, hey, we'll make those compounds for free. We will get them tested wow. for you, like for free. And, and because all of the data is in the open, no one owns a patent. No one's going to make any profit from this. So we just plowed on. There was, you know, no legal contracts to sign, no patents to try and file. We were just doing science funded for free by very kind contributors around the world. And so, you know, we went from these ideas on a website to what are called like lead candidates. So, you know, uh, very drug-like co compounds that are potent against the virus in about a year. And we Right now, it's been kind of 15 months since we launched it. We're preparing basically for what's called IND enabling studies. We have a, a good degree of confidence that we're going to be working toward a phase one human trial at the start of next year. And this, oh, this is, is awesome. In the open, you know, this drug yeah. will be able to be sold at near free. Not only that, but I may, maybe I'll come back to that point. The reason that it's important to have a cheap drug is not just because it's a feel-good factor, but because most of the developing nations in the world will not get access to the vaccine for several like 18 months to 
two years. And as long as COVID and the variants are around, you need some way to battle the pandemic. And antivirals are a really good way of managing the pandemic until the vaccines are available. The second thing that's really important is because all of the data is in the open, whenever the next pandemic comes along, inevitably it will, you have a really awesome set of rich experimental data that is ready to go and ready to be built upon whenever you now need to develop new drug candidates. Like if you look at SARS-CoV-1, back in, you know, um, back in Asia in kind of what was 2003, the actual genetic similarity between SARS-CoV-1 and SARS-CoV-2 was very, very high, well over like 80%. So if you find a drug that can kill SARS-CoV-1, you have a good degree of confidence that it will be effective against SARS-CoV-2. The problem is we didn't, back in 2002 and 2003, continue the experiments, put all of the data in one place and put the world on the front foot. We kind of had to start from scratch. Through COVID Moonshot, we want to make sure that never happens again. That if SARS-CoV-3 comes along, there is a wealth of data around what COVID Moonshot has done that's in the public domain that people can benefit from. So yes, we want to get a cheap drug to patients. We also want to help the world when it comes to pandemic preparedness. Yeah, this is really interesting. I'm really surprised by how much collaboration was going on and making this happen. It's really, it's really yeah. interesting. It's really interesting. Yeah, it's well, well over 30 organizations around the world. And not just academics been nice. Like this was big pharma. You know, we had one pharma company donate like 10% of their entire chemistry staff to the effort for free. It was just like a fantastic outpouring of support and starts making you think, hey, could we find drugs for other diseases that, that are yeah. not COVID using this model and, and that's a bit more blue sky thinking yeah yeah I think that there's this level of collaboration would be interesting to see as well in other like diseases that don't have enough attention particularly the ones from developing world could be something in the future to think about post-COVID maybe we're surprised yeah, by sure. this amount of collaboration it's really it's really good to see um, what trends in deep tech are you following now what you see as interesting new tech being developed overall in deep tech bio ai robotics space anything like what you are seeing and following up I, mean, I, th i think what you're actually beginning to see is that those different domains that you referred to are being moved out of silos that the actual robotics innovation the ai innovation the biology innovation is kind of been brought together for the first time you've got a variety of companies now that offer will roboticized, I think that's the right word, assay platforms, and you can run yeah. automated experiments and you have AI built into the end of them. So you're starting to see a fusion of these deep tech, I guess, innovations within organizations. And and that can get expensive. Uh, it, it can get very expensive, but the capital is there now within the actual VC industry to fund these type of more grand endeavors, which begins to combine hardware with software, with life sciences approach so yeah that's that's something to to that I try and kind of like keep an eye on particularly in our space yeah the convergence of different types of facts combined together like robotics and bio yeah makes sense like like advanced and enable advanced in other areas and, and what other startup you you admire in your field it's a good question so when we were when we were starting out i think you know i'll mention kind of like two companies that you know i think have done a great job um uh, the, the first is Exientia. so they're like a uk oxford based company 
Um, I think we were very impressed with their work. They now have three um, clinical candidates, uh, actually, sorry, it's not phase one trial candidates now. And I think they they really understood the importance of not just doing case studies and experimentation, but trying to get drugs as far down the line as possible. How much of that was done by AI, you'll never know. Obviously, it's always claimed it's done by AI, but behind the scenes, you don't know. But nonetheless, like they are actually getting drugs into the clinic, and that is hopefully going to improve the lives of patients. And I think that is always commendable. Um, Recursion is another company, you know, that, that uh, have done a really good job on the biology side. And when I mentioned to you this convergence of robotics and AI and deep tech in general, they've done a very good job of that. They have very, very high through, um, very high throughput imaging assays where they're basically looking at the phenotypes um, generated from different cell lines, and they're combining that with machine learning, building like a kind of biology operating system system as they say and, and again it's it's somewhat analogous to what we're trying to build just on the chemistry side of things from Posterior. so again you know Chris and, and the team there we, we think did a pretty fantastic job at the way they've built out that that company oh so a lot of yeah a lot of exciting things right now in, in bio and basically bio with AI and machine learning involved a lot of interesting companies uh, what advice would you give to a founder starting a tech company like, what would be your two cents of advice <laughs> wow what, what would i say to someone i think the first thing is i would never underestimate the value of domain expertise so just because you have innovated in machine learning in one field don't overestimate its capacity to make a dent in another field and so that, that's not to be pessimistic at all uh, but it just means i think where posterior i think we've done a good job is the chemists that we have and the machine learning folks that we have are both very very strong and we try both for both to have an equal footing in the decisions that are made so if you're in deep tech and you're a founder with a technical background my encouragement is to find a domain expert in the area that you're operating. The the second thing I would say is is also to make sure make sure that you don't just have a hammer that's called deep tech and you're looking for a nail to hit. Like start start with the problem and then figure out what is the best solution to fix the problem. Because like I, I do a lot of interviews, obviously I meet with a lot of ML PhDs and it, and they kind of come to me and they say, well, hey, I'm really interested in the latest in deep reinforcement learning and I'm hoping that it's useful to you and I kind of understand what they're saying but I want people to think the other way around I want people to come to me and say hey I'm really interested in improving drug discovery I can do machine learning and I'm hoping that that can be useful uh, for this application but if it's not useful I'm still willing to try and solve the problem using what other means are necessary so it's just yeah. putting things in the right order of technology alone is not the, is, is not to me the starting point the starting point is what is the problem you're trying to fix work backwards to then what is the technology and it may well be machine learning because it's a fantastic innovation and it can do a huge amount but don't start the premise of the only tool that i'm open to use is 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 machine learning it may well not be the best for the domain you're applying to yeah this is interesting like what you're saying is that instead of thinking about like okay i'm really good at machine learning or any other tech let me see where can i apply this going the other way around and saying like this is the problem what's the best solution that's technology that it could apply to this problem could be ml or could not be it yeah yes because because in a sense if you start with the tech and just try to find 
uh, how to apply it, you are limiting yourself. And maybe it's like a, you're getting a local local minimum where it's like not the best solution or could be a blend of ML and other things and other types of, of solutions as well, right? Yeah, it really is like yeah, internally within Posterior, like the, the, the ML, I'm incredibly proud of the ML that we've done and, and we've proven time and time again that it is state of the art. But most of our wins, big wins, they come from combining ML with really good engineering or ml with really good chemistry and i don't know for some people that's not sexy or it's not exciting but at the end of the day if you're focused on solving a problem that is exciting to you because it gets the job done and so yeah that's what i'd encourage people to be to to never underestimate what ai and machine learning can do but not overestimate what it can do by itself do you think that the fact that an actual solution or actual product tends to be messier than academic solution this is what turned people off like the reality to be messier than than than, than the lab i think some people rightly say that if you want to build a machine learning model like a real one that users can interact with like 10 of your time is writing some new ml architecture using certain layers in pytorch and innovating on loss functions and trying to improve gradient descent it's all of that cool mathematics mathematical and statistical basis of ML may take up 10% of your time. 90% of your time is going to be getting the data in the right format, processing the data, engineering the model so that it serves users at a reasonable performance level. That is much of what you will end up doing in industry. And so academia touches on a very important part, no doubt, incredibly important part, which is the fundamental research. But there is a journey to go from that fundamental research to making it practical and useful in an industry. And yes, for some people, that may be a put off and they should stay in academia. For us, that's part of our hiring process. Are you mission first or are you technology first? Because I don't want you if you're technology first. You are talking to someone that is in academia right now or in industry that wants to start working in drug discovery, get to work at post-era or start a new machine learning AI company in drug discovery, what would be your recommendations of uh, studying, what to do, what to learn, uh, projects to do, things like that? Yeah, so I think firstly, find out what, be honest with yourself about what your expertise is and then fill the gaps that you don't have. So if you're an expert in the AI and ML side of things, go do some work in the chemistry or the biology side, or at least, you know, spend time around people in that domain and, and ask them around about their pain points. Ask them what makes your life difficult? Why is it difficult? And try and ask yourself, could my skill set help fix that problem? But like you don't have to think about enterprise sales and all that stuff to begin with. Just be like, speak to a real human user who's in the domain of interest and figure out what their problem is. I guess, and secondly, if you are looking at, you know, establishing a company, I cannot overemphasize the importance of the founders that you want to do it with. Uh, we went through Y Combinator, so I've drunk some of the Kool-Aid, uh, but I think they're right in that, you know, solo founders is really hard. It's really, really hard. And I'm incredibly grateful to my other two co-founders for making this journey, you know, and uh, still difficult, but much easier than it would be by yourself. So I encourage you to, you know, if you're going to start a company, complement yourself with people who have different expertise to you. You mentioned Y Combinator. How how was your experience at YC like? Yeah, in, in general, uh, I think it's fantastic. Uh, they're not paying me to say that, I promise. But 
<laughs> they they do a fantastic job, and even even though even though they come from a bit more of a traditional software SaaS background, they they put a lot of work into translating their advice that they've built over a decade now, and translating that into bio companies and what that means. So the network itself is fantastic, even arguably more valuable than the partners. And so to me, the whole process of you have three months to make progress. At the end of those three months, we're going to give you the best investment pitch of your life, really forcing you to measure your progress, aim toward milestones, and all the just solid good advice about talking to users, keeping your eye on what's important, as well as obviously, yes, that, that some of the credibility that comes with it. Even during a pandemic, it pays significant dividends for Postura. Yeah, cool. And let's wrap up with some final questions. So what are your favorite books? Favorite books? <laughs> so I guess on the fiction or non-fiction split. So I guess on the on the non-fiction split, uh, obviously I, I, I'm a scientist. Uh, I'm also a Christian and I enjoy reading about the kind of intersection of faith and science, how these two huge ideologies have kind of merged and been conflicted during the course of time. It helps me as someone who's committed to both just understand how to view the world. So I spend a lot of time reading, you know, folks like C.S. Lewis and John Lennox and, and other people like that. On the fiction side of things, frankly, I need to get much better. I don't read as much fiction as I would have liked. So if there's anyone out there with good book recommendations, I'm, I'm very open to, to hearing about it. Yeah, yes, it's pretty great on this religion and science. And I think more than religion and science, I think that the intellectual side of life and the spiritual side of life, I think it's even more than just the science, what, what he wrote. It's really, this part of his work, I think it's not appreciated enough. It's really, it's really interesting. And uh, as a deep tech founder you need to be able to learn a lot of things consume a lot of information like how do you keep yourself up to date like what's your like information consumption and processing routine or yeah this this is really hard like i think this is a real real challenge because there is an endless amount of information if you're listening to this podcast you're consuming information and you have to ask yourself is it worth me sat here listening to erin and edmar or should i be consuming other information elsewhere that is a constant challenge like my recommendation is to To, uh, again, try and diversify in what you read, uh, both across the science, both across the kind of like uh, machine learning and business side of things. So I spend a lot of time trying to look at the market, trying to look at um, the non-scientific side of what it means to start a biotech company, financial engineering around how we could um, make posterior even more successful, have, have a breadth of reading. And I think when it comes to news, we're certainly within my sector, um, Twitter is very, very good. So I do follow some of um, the folks on Twitter. There's some very, very good blogs out there and encourage you to kind of follow and read the people who are on the front lines who are doing the work. They often write really good blogs. Generally stay away from textbooks. Uh, I generally have not found a textbook to be overly helpful. Give me some example of a blog that you, you read that you like from the front lines. Uh, sure. I mean, one of the ones that's really good is uh, a blog called In the Pipeline uh, by, by Derek Lowe. 
Hello. Uh, it's a guy called Bruce Booth, who runs one called Life Science VC that has some kind of great posts on there. Um, and then finally, there's a lot of um, companies that post kind of super interesting kind of blogs as well. Y Combinator does a lot of blogs on the business side. Horowitz put out some good material as well in the kind of like bio AI space. Uh, and then plenty of, of like AI companies put out blog posts as well. You can read some of the posts, you know, Postira puts out on some of our research and you know, I spend time reading what other companies put out there. So um, yeah, both what uh, investor blogs, scientific blogs, VC blogs, I, I try and be broad in, in that type of reading. Oh, this is cool. And my last question for you, if you had the chance to send just one message to every human on earth, what would it be? Listen to Edmore's podcast. That's <laughs> the one <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, on a, on a, that is a good piece of advice. But no, on a serious note, I think I think it's been well proven that if you want to optimize human happiness, that relationships are the basis of that. Like the world's longest study from Harvard is like a 90 year study into human health concluded that like healthy relationships are the best predictor of health and happiness. And to me, firstly, having a right relationship with God, and then secondly, having a right relationship with people, with friends, with family, with those you care about. To me, in that order, that is what I would want a broadcast message to everyone on the planet to know. Wow, this is cool. Thank you, man. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. It was amazing to have you. I'll be following the future of post-era, which I do believe it's going to be great. Thank you. I hope so too. Thanks again. Welcome to the Deep Tech Show. In this podcast, your host, Edmar Ferreira, will be joined by expert guests as they dive into the world of deep tech. We are telling the stories of the heroes who are taking real risks to give us a future of flying cars, virtual reality, robots, and space exploration. Enjoy the show.